Hey, if you will, take your Bible and turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to continue on in our series uh, looking at this subversive servant of God who was on the run and trying to do everything he could uh, to change God's plan, God's will for his life, as well as the people he was called uh, to go and to preach to. As you're finding your place there, I want to throw a couple terms out to you. I want you to think about these. They're going to be the theme uh, for this message as we look here at the uh, uh, remaining verses of, of chapter 1. I want you to think about the ideas of justice and mercy. Uh, two terms, two legal terms, uh, two theological terms, right? Uh, these two ideas um, we may not fully understand, but I, I think we can all say that we all desire for them to work themselves out in our lives. We want to see justice and we want to experience mercy. We want to see justice when people do wrong to others, when they harm people. We want to see them brought to justice, and, and, and yet we expect mercy to be granted to ourselves if we find ourselves in that sort of situation. We, we don't necessarily want justice, or we want the leaniest of lean type of justice to come our way. Expressing this sort of expectation, Sidney Harris in his commentary on the book of Jonah says, we evaluate our friends with a godlike justice, but we want them to evaluate us with a godlike compassion. Can you, can you uh, fully understand the perspective he's coming from there? See, we're often quick to call for justice without while withholding mercy, and, and thankfully God does not respond to us in the same way. I mean, picture this this morning. What if the Lord treated you like sometimes you treat other people? What if he was quick to judge? What if he was quick to wrath and quick to bring condemnation and judgment? But thankfully he's not like that. Yes, the Bible tells us that he is just. He, he's the God who justly deals with our sin. There's nothing you've ever done that's outside the will of God and the word of God that you will escape with. You're never going to, like Jonah, think you're going to get on a ship and, and get outside the presence of God. He will justly deal with your sin. And yet the Lord is also merciful and gives grace to those who have transgressed. Hear what the Bible says about God's justice and mercy. I want to read uh, just a few verses from different points within the Old Testament. And then we're going to get into the message here. Psalm one. Or Psalm 11, verse 7, I should say, says, For the Lord is righteous. I, that's just a small few words of that, that one verse there. But think about what it means. The Lord is righteous. That means he's righteous in all of his dealings. It means he's good in everything that he does. It means he's first tier righteousness in the way he responds to us. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect for all. His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I'm thankful for a God who doesn't sin. I'm thankful for a God who is not like me, who's fickle and flirtatious with the things that bring harm into my life. Isaiah 13 verse 11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride pompous pride of the ruthless. God is the one who punishes evil. He's the one who justly addresses sin, but we also see the other side of this. There's justice, but there's mercy. 
Our God is a merciful God. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God is both just and merciful. Psalm 116, verse 5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. All throughout the scripture, in both the Old and the New Testament, we see these two ideas coupled. God is just and God is merciful. I'm thankful for that. I think as we observe the Lord's Supper, maybe because I've been looking at these concepts all this week, it's just made my heart so much more tender to that. So praise God for his justice and his mercy. This morning we praise him for rightly dealing with sin, and we praise him for his tenderness toward the sinner. This morning as we look at this passage, as we look at what's going on here, as we kind of dive into this story a little bit deeper, I want you to see these two ideas. I want you to see the justice of God, and I want you to see the mercy of God flowing down the same river, impacting the same people. Throughout Jonah, we see a concept that we have to embrace as Christians. It's the concept of evangelism. This whole book is about evangelism. Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. He's called to go to the enemies of Israel. He's called to go to a wicked, evil, and cruel people. Why? To preach, to tell them that God knows their sin. And Jonah knows if I preach and they hear and they repent, God will be merciful. And he wants nothing to do with that. And yet he wants God's mercy for himself. Evangelism is at the heart of what we see in this story. He has to go. He has to preach of the Lord's justice and mercy to them. And the beauty of the gospel is that sinners can receive mercy and they can be forgiven of their sin when they believe that Jesus has paid the penalty. That's what the Lord's Supper was all about. Man, you can't pay the penalty for your sin. You can't do enough good things. You can't work yourself out of a bad situation. I've done hundreds of funerals over the last 20 years. I've never yet once seen a dead person set up in the casket and say, don't worry, I'm okay. Dead people do not come back to life unless God touches them. What's the point, pastor? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. How in the world can a dead person become alive? It's when my, my, my mind and my heart recognizes I am dead because I've sinned against God. I'm separated from him, and yet his call upon my life is sparking something there, and I recognize it, and I affirm it, and by faith I put my trust there, and all of a sudden the life of God comes back into this dead corpse and gives me eternal life being born again. It's justice and mercy. You see, on the cross, God justly exhausted his wrath against all sin. Every person who's ever lived, every person who will ever live, they have all sinned and will sin, and all of that sin was placed upon Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the sin of humanity was placed on the shoulders of Jesus. God the Son and God the Father exhausted his wrath. Why? Because he's just and has to deal with sin. And there on the cross, Jesus bore that so that we could be set free and receive mercy. That's what Jesus has done for us. We're going to see how all that plays out in the text. 
So this morning in this passage, what we see here is Jonah is questioned about whether or not he's, he is the cause for the storm. We see these polytheistic pagan sailors having an understanding of theology that, that at the moment is escaping this prophet. And they, like Charles Spurgeon, understood that God never allows his children to sin successfully. That's something you ought to hear this morning. If you're a child of God walking in, in rebellion, walking into a guilty distance, he won't let you do that very successfully. There will be a moment where your face hits the wall of reality, and if you're a child of God, there will become repentance and, again, faith in your life. And praise God for that. That's his grace and his mercy. Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says, and they said to one another, remember, this is the sailors. Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And so he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and then lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's an incredible story we see here. It begins with God saying, Jonah, I want you to get up and go. And Jonah gets up and says no and goes in the opposite direction. You see, Jonah is this man who's running from and subverting God's will. And, and, and as we think about this rebel, we dare not forget. We, we dare not forget that he is the prophet of God. He's not just some Joe Blow off the street. He's not just some ordinary person. He's not just a typical Jew. He's the prophet of God. He's spoken on behalf of God. God has used him as, in tremendous ways. As we see in 2 Kings chapter 14, he's prophesied about the, the nation of Israel and how they're going to extend their borders. And it all came to pass. As I've told you, he follows in the line of the great men that preceded him, men like Elijah and Elisha, men who did incredible things. Elijah stood there before King Ahab and he called fire down from heaven and burned up the sacrifice and proved that the God of Israel, he is God and greater than the gods of Baal. Elisha is the man of God who was called upon to heal that enemy general who came knocking on his door one day. So Jonah falls in that line, and yet over time, his heart had become dull, his ears no longer could really hear, and his eyes were closed to the things of God. 
And so Jonah, when he was told to get up and go to Nineveh, he got up and went down to Joppa. He found a ship that would take him as far as possible from the Lord's call on his life. The storm that God sent after him was to bring him back. It was to bring him to a place of repentance and faith. The storm was just not an ordinary storm. It was a major storm. It threatened to break the ship up. Sailors recognized that this had some sort of divine aspect to it. They discerned it as a divine reaction against someone's sin. And so they began to be introspective. Is it me? They're calling upon their gods. They threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. So they were doing two things. We're going to be spiritual and we're going to work like it all depends on us. And while all this is taking place, we know that Jonah, as it's told to us, is asleep. He's dead to the world. He's dead to God. And so the captain goes below deck. We looked at those verses last week, and and he finds Jonah sleeping there. And it's amazing what he says. He basically says this, get up. What in the world are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Don't you know the storm is going on outside? Don't you know the ship is about to break up? Don't you know that we are calling upon our gods? You get up, call upon your God, and perhaps your God is the one who will answer. Your God is the one behind this. I believe the captain, if, if, if I'm the captain on that ship, I might have thrown him over because he wasn't praying at that point. Before we even got to the point of why you're not praying or why you're sleeping, I would have thrown him overboard. The captain is beside himself. And so Jonah emerges from below deck. He comes up upon the deck up, upside, and he finds the sailors casting lots to determine who's at fault. Casting lots is a thing that we see often in the Bible. It's the way that back then, uh, the peoples, uh, not just in, in Israel, but in other cultures as well, they would cast these lots, these rocks that had certain colors on them, and the way they come, came up with the certain colors would indicate who's at fault or who the question was pointing to. And so the lots fell on Jonah. He's guilty. They begin to question him about what he has done. They wanted to know why the storm was after him. They were looking for an answer within the realm that they could control. They needed a real solution. You see, the storm was getting stronger. This is something they've ever, never known. They didn't understand how the storm could keep being more intense every single hour. So they needed a solution. They're looking for an answer. They're trying to figure all of this out. So they begin to question Jonah and Jonah begins to answer their questions. He confessed his liability. He owned the fact that he uh, was a Hebrew, that he comes from Israel. He owned his religion. There's one thing that he doesn't talk about though. It's interesting. He never says, I'm the prophet of God. He just says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm from Israel. He's obviously he's a Jew, but it doesn't say I used to speak on behalf of God. He seems to be a little ashamed of his occupation. Jonah refuses to tell them that. Instead, it seems, if you look at verse 10, it seems that he's leading them to believe that he has left the faith. I believe in the God of Israel. I believe in the one who is, I fear the one who's the maker of heaven and earth. I I fear, which is interesting, right? I fear the one who made it all. He owns the sea, and yet I'm crossing the sea to get away from it. None of it makes logical sense. Hear Hear me something that's not in the notes. When you're engaged in sin, you never make sense. Your rationality for the things that you're doing are never logical. They're never sensical. They're never right. And yet we 
we, we, warp our, we allow our minds to become warped to believe that it's okay doing what we're doing. And so the sailors here are questioning him. They need a solution. And Jonah offers one that will work. He says, if you throw me into the sea, then the storm will cease. He understands he's the problem. He's told them that, right? He said, hey, I'm the problem. This is the reason the sea's coming. I know that God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing. I know there's no way I can escape him but I'm trying. So if you'll just throw me into the ocean, the storm will cease. And so what we find here is that we don't see Jonah praying in this chapter, and we do not see Jonah repenting of his disobedience in this chapter. His solution to the storm is, cast me into the sea, I will die, and God's wrath will be appeased. What is Jonah saying? I would rather die than be in God's will going to the people I hate and preach the gospel. I would rather die. I would rather die in disgrace. I would rather mar the name of my God in disobedience and rebellion than come to repentance and faith once again. The sailors were obviously more compassionate than the prophet. And they tried to work another solution. They said, well, let's row harder. We, you know, they, they do what we try to do. Let's be religious. Let's lean in. Let's white knuckle it. Let, let's do what we can do to make our lives better rather than recognizing that God is after me. I'm sinful. I'm undone. No, I'm going to still try to do it in my own power and my own ability. And so they began to row harder back to dry land. And the Bible tells us that they could not for the sea grew more and more temptuous. See, that's what happens in our lives when we think that we can do it better and do it harder and through our abilities, make it work. How's that working for you? About as well as the sailors on the ship. One disaster after another. And so finally they give up. They begin to say, we can't do it. We got to do it the Lord's way. And so they begin to call out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Don't lay on us the guilt of innocent blood. You're the one who set this up. You're the one who orchestrated this. We're going to just follow that plan. We recognize your, uh, your, your Lord. We recognize we're accountable to you. Oh, God, don't hold us guilty. Don't bring justice on us like you're bringing it on this man. So Jonah, when he's made to, so to speak, walk the plank, falls into the sea, and immediately the storm is dissipated. This unusual and miraculous event brought a holy awe upon the sailors. I mean, think about that. Can you imagine? I mean, the storm's been raging, I don't know, maybe days, definitely hours. Jonah's been asleep. He's a believer. little thing he comes upstairs. They figure out, man, you're the problem. He says, cast me in the sea. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stop. They immediately thought, sure, right, let's just row harder right? It's not going to happen that way. He falls into the sea, not fall. The Bible says he was hurled. He was cast into the ocean and immediately the skies uh, clear up. The sun starts shining. The 10 foot, 20 foot, 30 foot swells, who, however big they were, all of a sudden calm and crystal clean. What would you think in that situation? This guy's God is God. We've been calling on our joker gods for hours. They haven't done a thing. This guy said, if you'll do this, my God will calm the storms. 
There's a holy awe in their life. They're being drawn to the God of Israel. They're seeing him high and lifted up and powerful and glorious. And the Bible tells us in verse 16 that they feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Probably not right there on the ship. Probably not wise to build a a fire on a wooden ship in the middle of the ocean. But as soon as they got back to the land, what did they do? They offered a sacrifice. They pledged themselves to the Lord. They pledged themselves to forsake their idols and their gods. There's a lot happening in this passage. Let me just point out a couple things here. We see that believers can and do continue to rebel and walk in sin while experiencing the judging hand of God, right? That's Jonah. He's walking in rebellion. The the judgment's coming upon him, and yet he does not relent in his rebellion. That happens in our lives. We see that sinners seek a solution to their situation outside of God, even when the path has been made clear. That's the sailors. He says, if you drop me in the ocean, everything's going to be good for you. What do they do? Let's row harder. Let's keep doing it in our own ability. We do that today. We see the description of a substitute who dies on behalf of others. Now, Jonah doesn't die in this text, but he would have died if verse 17 doesn't happen and a fish comes up and swallow him like a spinnerbait. That's for my fishing people out here. We see the one that dies for the many. Jonah's life is to be offered so that the sailors can be saved. And if, if this imagery sounds familiar, it's, it's the gospel. It's Jesus. Jesus, in fact, would pick it up in in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, and he would say, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the grave. One who dies for the many. And Jesus, he's not a rebellious prophet running from God the Father. No, in Jesus, you've got the sinless, perfect Son of God who substitutes his life on behalf of all sinners. But the imagery is there. The foreshadowing is there in the Old Testament, pointing to what Jesus would culminate on the cross. We also see the dual theme of justice and mercy that's woven throughout these other components. And I want us to look at those two ideas in the remainder of our time. First of all, I want you to see two things. In these verses, we see justice is brought against sin. Justice is brought against sin. A few weeks ago, when we were looking at verses 4 and 5, we said that God always responds to sin. Why? He's the God of justice. God never glosses over sin. God never says, no big deal. Let's just pass over it. I understand you were under a lot of stress. Understand you didn't really understand that. I understand that you're weak and you're finite. But that's not how God works. See, when a crime is committed, a just punishment is what we desire, right? Let's just put it in our ballpark. Anytime someone does something against us or a family member or someone we know, or even in the community at large, we recognize that it's wrong and we want justice to be served in that situation. We inherently know that justice should be served against those who steal. We inherently know that it's right for justice to be served against those who would kill and against those who would harm people. This inherent desire, where does it come from? Paul would say in Colossians 1.16, you're made by God and you're made for God. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 would tell us that we're made in the image and likeness of God. So where do you think that inherently comes from? God. He's just. 
And so our desire to see justice in our culture, our desire to see justice in our homes and in our families is because God desires to see justice. The Bible portrays him as one who is just and righteous. Therefore, he never glosses over sin, but instead he's always responding to it justly and righteously, which means he always responds to your sin. You may be thinking you're getting away with something. You're not. He's just being gracious and not getting on you right now. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. And so the consequences for your lifestyle and the choices that you're making are impacting you today, and they will catch up with you. Because the all-seeing God knows what's going on in your life. He is just. And justice is what's brought against Jonah's rebellion. God here hurls this storm upon the sea to break apart the ship that the prophet has chartered. The storm is meant to get his attention. We've talked about that in recent weeks. It's meant to bring him to repentance. And if he refuses to repent, I want you to know this. The ship will bring him to his death. As a follower of Jesus, as a believer in Christ, can we rebel against the Lord to the point that he takes us out? I believe we can If you're a child of God, first of all, I think it's hard to walk in that rebellion for that length of time. But I do believe at some point, if you continue to say no to him, he will take you out. And so the ship was meant for that. If Jonah had continued to rebel, the ship would have sunk and killed everyone on board. The same is true for the sailors. It was meant for justice on their lives. You say, well, they didn't rebel against God. Sure they did. They had not refused the preaching assignment like the prophet, but they had refused the the, the God who sent the prophet. They were idolaters. They were worshiping false gods. They had turned their back on their creator. And so everything in their life, everything in creation, pointed them to seek the one true God. Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 1 that we are all without excuse. The fact that there's a sun that rises in the east every single morning. The fact that we see the cyclical and, and, and and the things of creation all around us tell us that this is not here by chance there's a god behind it so they were without excuse and so if they would have perished in that ship being broke up and sunk at at sea god would have been just in that moment because they had moments and opportunities to turn to the one true god but their hearts were wicked and rebellious as they saw their own solution in verse 13 to the storms of life So the Bible makes very clear that God is a God of justice, and he brings justice against sin. Uh, For instance, it begins all the way back in Genesis. It begins in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God told Adam, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God there in the very beginning warns Adam of the danger of disobedience. See, if he ate from this forbidden tree, he would die. That's interesting. Adam surely had very little understanding or concept of this idea of death. Humanity was not made for death. Do you hear what I just said? You and I were not made. We're not created for death to be even in the equation of our lives. Genesis 2, 7, the Bible tells us that God took from the dust of the earth and he formed Adam. And then what did he do next? He breathed the breath of life in him. And then he gives the warning. Everything's yours. 
enjoy, steward, uh, image me in this world, uh, personify me in this world, be godlike in this world. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to enjoy fellowship with you. You steward my creation. Here's everything for you. But if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. I don't think Jonah or Adam fully would have grasped that. He, he knew enough. He's deceived. He eats of it. What happens? He died. The warning was that disobedience would sever the relationship by breaking the trust. And in that moment, death would enter the picture for Adam and all of humanity. Unfortunately, we know this is exactly what took place in Genesis 3 when they're deceived. Adam and Eve experienced the justice of God when they ate from that tree, that forbidden tree, and they died. Paul picks up this theme as he explains the theology of the gospel to the church there in Rome. And so in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says to that church and to us today, he says, for the wages of sin is death. The penalty, the payment, the paycheck for your sin is death. You see, sin is a serious business. It condemns you before God. It separates you from your creator. And so as a Christian, living in open rebellion against God, it places you in a very peculiar and dangerous position. Justice demands that your sin be judged. Someone who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, your sin will take you to hell for all of eternity. That's how serious sin is. You say, well, I'm not a murderer. I've never raped somebody. I've never been a child molester. I've never done some wicked, heinous thing. One little sin, if there's such a thing, but in our understanding of sin, something that we would say, that's minor. It's an affront and an offense, an eternal offense to an eternal God. It's an infinite offense to an infinite God. Therefore, it demands and deserves an infinite punishment. God is just, and he justly judges sin. Thankfully, there's another component. Uh, that's been tough sled. Second thing I want you to see from these verses, and it's this, mercy is extended toward sinners. Justice is brought against sin. Mercy is extended toward sinners. You see, mercy is going to be extended to Jonah as we will see next week. We're going to get into chapter 2. We're going to look at that entire chapter next Sunday, Lord willing. And we're going to see there that God in his mercy doesn't kill Jonah in the, in the sea. As soon as he hits the water, there was a fish primed and ready like a big old eight-pound largemouth bass coming up on a Zarespoo. Can I get an amen? I'm, I'm, all, I'm full of fishing stories this morning. It's been a while. Since I caught a big one on a spook. The storm was sent to garner the attention of the prophet. It was to get him back in service. The Lord also graciously used it to show his superiority over the gods of the sailors served. You see, God used it to reveal the vanity of self-reliance. Hey guys, you can't row your way back into a good life. Their repentance and faith are somewhat unexpected. I mean, you read the story, God's after Jonah. It seems that, at least from my perspective, it seems like the sailors are an afterthought. That's not really who God was going after. And yet those are the first people to turn. Those are the first people to recognize their sinfulness, recognize their position. 
They're pagans from outside the borders of God's chosen people and land, so we would not expect this. And yet, as we read the rest of the story, we discover that his heart, God's heart was open, and God's heart was seeking after far from God people. Why did he send Jonah to to Nineveh? To reach and to preach to far from God people so that they had an opportunity to recognize their sinfulness. Put it in the words of Isaiah, I'm undone before God, and I'm turning to him. Mercy was extended to all of these. So through the preaching of the storm, mercy was likewise extended to these sailors. Going back to what Paul said in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Justice, right? Thankfully, that verse doesn't end there. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Mercy. Justice demands death. Justice demands punishment. Justice demands separation from the God who created you for yourself. Justice demands that a verdict be read and finalized. But God says, absolutely, there's justice, but I'm merciful. I'm going to extend mercy. Mercy comes through the work of Jesus Christ. Sin is serious business, but mercy is readily available. Again, listen to the words of Isaiah 30, verse 18 that I read earlier. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. Justice and mercy. How can the Lord be both? How can he extend justice and yet at the same time be merciful? Uh, if we don't understand the gospel, we may miss this and think you can't have, or that you can have one without the other. I'm going to answer it by asking you to go to Romans chapter 3, and let's look at some verses of Scripture here. And we're almost finished. Look at verse 21. We're going to read through verse 26. But now, and just forewarn you, this is technical theological language here, a lot happening, but I'm going to break down and give you the gist of it. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, here's the key, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so what's happening here? We see that God is both just and justifier in salvation, and he does this through the death and the resurrection of God the Son, who is Jesus Christ. So all people are sinful, both in nature and in practice. We've been, uh, we've been born into sin, therefore we sin. The Bible teaches that we're totally depraved. We're cut off from God. Paul would say it this way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every time I think of this verse, I think of a long jumper. I used to long jump in high school, and I think of the Grand Canyon. I was there a few years ago with Kara. Beautiful place. 
And as a long jumper, the best long jumper on the face of the earth might jump 30 or a little more than 30 feet. How do you think that's going to fare jumping across the Grand Canyon 10 miles across? Now, you're going to be plunging to your death hundreds of feet below you. That's the good works that we think we can do to earn our way to God. In mercy and in grace, however, God has made a way for condemned sinners to be forgiven and adopted into the family of God because we are outcasts. We are outcasts because of our sin. Now, through grace and mercy, he's made a way for us to be brought near. This way is through Jesus Christ, who Paul says is a propitiation. It means he did something to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. He did something to appease that wrath against sin. You see, the penalty for sin was and always is death. I read Genesis 2.17 earlier. God's offer of mercy and grace to sinners cannot and is not divorced from his justice. God, through Jesus, doesn't call us to himself and say, I know you sinned, I know you're in a rebellion, but you really didn't understand what you were doing. It's no big deal. Let's sort of move on. We may do that as parents, and it's to our detriment. I'm guilty of it. Kara's more guilty. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you're over here. I was pointing at the wrong person. Um, no, we're guilty of it as parents, right? It never works to our favor. God's never guilty of that. He never glosses over sin. He never passes over our sin. He deals with it, and he deals with it in Jesus. That's where justice was upheld against sin. It was upheld against the wrath of the Father being poured out on sin. And who is it poured out on? Jesus, who bore our sin. He bore our sins in his body. He was the substitute for ourselves. And while that's happening, mercy is also upheld in Jesus because through him and what he atoned for us, he now can offer mercy and forgiveness to our life. It's grace that we've been given. And so what do we do with all of this knowledge? If we understand today that in Jonah's life and in his rebellion, God is taking it seriously and there's mercy available, what do I do with this knowledge? Let me give you two action points and we will land the plane. Number one, recognize that God justly punishes sin. You cannot and you will not escape, as I said earlier, the eye of God. He knows your sin, which means he's punishing your sin. You're not going to get away with it. So recognize it. I mean, the, the best thing you could do for yourself today is to say, Lord, I have sinned and I'm guilty. That's the best thing you could do. Own it, right? Number two. Receive God's mercy, his gracious mercy. Stop running from God. Turn toward him. Get out of the ship. Quit being Jonah. I mean, if Jonah, if he would have understood what was happening in this moment, he knew enough to know he was the cause. He didn't realize enough to say, I need to repent. I'm going to jump in the water and start swimming to shore. That's what he should have done. I'm going to jump in the water. I'm going to fall on my sword. I'm going to acknowledge my sin. I'm going to run to the mercy of God because that's who he is. Today, through Jesus, we can be forgiven. Today, through Jesus, we can be set free from all bondages of sin. And so by faith, we need to place our faith in Jesus through repentance. If you're a believer walking into guilty distance, here's the, here's the message today. Here's the invitation for you. Come on. Come home. I don't know what's going on in y'all's lives, but the Lord does. In October of 1996, 
There were 16 people who went missing after reporting that they were abandoning their sinking yacht. The yacht's name was the Intrepid, off the coast of Fort Pierce, Florida. The passengers of this 65-foot yacht sent out a mayday call saying the ship was sinking and everyone on board was escaping on a life raft. The Coast Guard sent a team out. They began to search. They came back and reported that seas in the air were rough with waves up to seven feet high. Those four aircrafts that they had dispatched worked all night and into the morning looking for the life raft. After searching some 6,000 square miles off the coast of Florida, the search was called off. Intrepid and her 16 passengers were never found. I read that story and I just asked the question, why did the captain of the Intrepid not turn back earlier when the waves began to, begin, began to be so big that it was dangerous to go further? Why did they keep moving out to sea? Why did they keep moving into the storm? Why not move back to safer waters? Why risk life of yourself, life of the crew, the ship itself, which was obviously probably worth millions of dollars? Did the captain trust in the design of the ship? Did he trust in his ability to navigate? Did he fear turning back, thinking that people would look at him and say, what were you doing? It wasn't that big of a wave. It was only seven foot. He feared what his other colleagues would say. We'll never know the answer to why they did not turn back, but we know the outcome of not turning back. For us, how do you respond when the storms are raging in your life? Do you attempt to ride it out, somehow make it your own? Do you recognize the divine aspect of the storm? Do you begin to look up? Do you call upon the Lord? I mean, we respond really in one of two ways. It's pretty simple. I'm going to continue to move in the direction I want to move, or I'm going to look up and say, God, what do I need to learn? What do I need to do? What do I need to say? What do I need to forsake? What do I need to confess? Or What is it that's going on in my life? Not every storm that you're facing in life is because of sin. I want you to know that. Sometimes God allows and causes bad things to happen to your life to grow you in your faith. Sometimes it's there so that the people around you can watch how you endure through it. And through that suffering, it points them to Jesus. They see the Jesus in you fleshed out. So just because you're in a storm doesn't mean you're sinful, but it could. In the case of Jonah, he was running, not walking, running in rebellion. How do you respond to the storms of life? I know how God responds. Justice and mercy. Which one do you fall into this morning?